My name is Andy Dorado. This is Furthermore. We take the month's bestseller from the New York City bookstore where I work, we read the first 50 pages, and we decide, would we delve in or would we shelve it? On today's episode of Furthermore, October's bestseller, The Overstory by Richard Powers. Although this book won the Pulitzer back in April, its sales have been strong towards the end of the year, and I'm joined by an old coworker of mine, Tyler Colton, to discuss the first piece of eco-fiction we're doing here on Furthermore. Tyler and I are going to discuss trees, morose short stories, and I, I think I'm still waiting on Tyler to give me his favorite book. We're going to take a deep dive into The Overstory and figure out why it's been having such a strong end of the year. Did Tyler and I delve in, or did we shelve it? Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Furthermore. I'm Andy, and today I am joined by my friend, Tyler. Tyler, what is your last name? Colton. Colton. Everybody's got such easy last names that I have on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, today, Tyler and I are taking a look at The Overstory by Richard Powers, which was our bestseller in October here at this store. And Tyler, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. It's <laughs> Tyler, a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, Tyler used to work at the store and you have since moved on to bigger and better things like coordinating a bunch of tutors. Yes. Um, but just so in town. It's, it's <laughs> nothing, nothing. You know, it's just gloomy. We were just discussing, I think we, we it was probably around September or so that you, you left the store. Yeah, you were, you were with us almost a year, I feel like. Um, no, like, I think, wait, was it a little more? I think it was October 2018. You're right. I think it was October because I was <laughs> for a brief moment I was dog walking before I oh, started. Oh, that's at right. The I remember yeah, when yeah, yeah. you were dog. Well, on top of tutoring and dog walking, <laughs> tell us tell the tell the podcast a little bit about yourself. Um. Yeah. I. Um, I'm. <laughs> I have nothing. I'm absolutely nothing. I'm sweating here. Um, I live nearby, um, yes. so I, um, I'm a happy neighbor, and I miss you guys dearly, and uh, there are many days when I'm making my commute to Midtown that I wish I were just doing the two-block walk, but uh, yeah, um, this is a book that I have wanted to read, and now that I've read 50 pages, well, we'll get into that. Yeah, I'm glad it. you did. So yeah. you, you did your undergrad at Princeton, right? I remember because yes. you're wearing a sweatshirt right now. Yes. And yeah, um, it was... It was Art history, right? Yeah, I did art history and a little bit of medieval stuff, nice. medieval studies. Nice. So eminently employable. Nice. <laughs> Say you to the theater major <laughs> over yeah, here. Yeah, uh, and are you? You're not working in the art world at the moment, right? I remember you said you were doing some kind gallery of tangent, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I worked at gal galleries after I graduated, and now I'm only tangentially working in the art world, but I'm at a school that's associated with Sotheby's Auction House. Cool. Um, I'm coordinating some of their MA programs there, and that's that's a good time. Nice. And I'm also a tutor. I tutor a high school student on the Upper East Side. Nice. So much tutoring. Tyler used to come work like two hours at the end of the night for me <laughs> when, when I needed someone desperately. Like eight to ten, he'd pop in and just like be there. Those are brutal evenings. Yeah, very appreciative. I knew you couldn't. I knew you couldn't sustain it for too long. So, uh, yeah. Well, I'm super happy that you're on. Let's get this started. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that I always ask my Please. guests. So let's start with the big one, which is: Do you have a favorite book? Oh, that is a great question. That's a hard question to answer. I, yeah. I'm I'm sure I do have a favorite book, but 
I'm just as sure that it changes really frequently. <laughs> That's not surprising. Um, Do you have something you read lately then that you've really loved? Ooh, also a great question. Do you know, I, it shouldn't be on my favorites list, but I just read um, Natasha Stagg's memoirs. Oh, okay. Um, and what is it, semiotics? Yeah, or that's semiotext. Semi- text. Yes, <laughs> Semi- that's right. Yes, yes. Um, her memoirs are called Sleeveless, and she writes about the kind of changing media landscape in New York oh, over the last decade. And I just thought that she wrote with such clarity, but also clearly in it but at the same time a little bit looking over everything yeah. and seeing how things are changing um i thought that was really that was the last book that i read that i found really compelling interesting but as far as a favorite book well how would you answer that question have you answered that question i don't know before? i don't know if anyone's thrown that back to me on the podcast before so i will reveal my my favorite book of all time <laughs> is uh is mother night by kurt vonnegut oh yeah you're a huge vonnegut fan yes yeah, yeah, yeah. very big vonnegut and that one is my favorite of all of them and it's a weird thing it's like i feel like there are some people that you know all of your favorite things i could tell you my favorite book i could tell you my favorite song ever I could probably tell you, yeah, I could tell you my favorite movie, like that kind of stuff. I always feel like I sort of keep a ranking in my head. I could tell you my favorite TV show of all time, and it's Frasier by like a hundred and fifty percent. Frasier is an amazing yeah. TV show. So, uh, that yeah. absolutely should be on <laughs> but, anyone's yeah. top five. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people, yeah, that's like there are so many books, and that's not to say. I mean, you know, I probably have a top five books, but for some reason, Mother Night is always the one that I can come back to and pick. Hmm. Maybe I Serve the King of England. That's a great I Serve book. the King of England. Who wrote that one? I can't even pronounce its name. It's, 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 it's one of those horrific Czech names. Oh, I thought man. of changing my answer before giving it because I knew that I was going to have to pronounce his last name. Oh, man. Uh, if I, we'll have to, in the middle of this, I know I'm going to think of a book that I want. Okay mentioned as okay. my favorite book. <laughs> do you do you have a specific like genre that you stick to? I feel like I remember you being a pretty diverse reader. Yeah, I read a lot of nonfiction. Yeah. But I also I really like memoirs. Mm-hmm. Thomas Mann. I read a lot yeah, of Thomas yeah, Mann and like that. around that circle yeah. of people. Yeah. So Lion Feuchtwanger and like a lot of German emigres all read a lot of their stuff. Christopher nice. Isherwood, I like Christopher oh, Isherwood yeah. a lot. Potter Violet is a really good Chris Risha yeah. Wood book that I like and would probably include on a favorites list there where he's go. talking about making a film. There so maybe go. maybe that's the answer for now. Have you read, um, I might pronounce his last name wrong, but is it Peter Handke? The guy who, I think he won the Nobel Prize for Literature this year. H-A-N-D-K-E. Is he writing from... No, well, actually, could you describe I, the book uh, that he won for that you know? No, I, think he, well, he, I think he just won the, like... The, the, the prize for literature, not any specific book, just won the prize. Though the only thing that I've read from him, which I read in grad school, was it was like a very short. Um, it was basically just him t- telling about his mother's life in Nazi-occupied Germany, and this she, is the she same. Lived pretty this is, um And he's sort of he's like a junker almost. He's kind of kind like of, yeah. like <laughs> what would you call it like. Lower middle class nobility <laughs> in East Germany because yeah, uh, yeah. he's kind of by yep. the front. He's yeah. like almost by the Russian the the, yes. the line in, in East Germany. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I really like that. Um, actually, I, I read that text, um, and it's super weird. And my favorite character in that was this um, kind of weirdly covetous instructor who comes and instructs the little boy. 
Yes. Who's like obsessed with like the value of the objects that he sees around him. Right. And I think at one point he's what would you call him a philatelist? He <laughs> I think he collects stamps. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and yeah. so he peels the stamps off of a postcard that he sees lying on a side right. table in one scene and that just stuck with me so vividly <laughs> that he did this cuz I was like I would know cuz as a tutor of course <laughs> right. there's a line you don't cross and it's stealing from your oh my gosh. <laughs> from the children under your employ. Oh my gosh. This um, is so. This is what I love about you, Tyler. Is I feel like you and I have sort of like the same wavelength of like humor or appreciation for the weird. It's just that I feel like yours is yours sort of skews towards like memoir or nonfiction or this sort of like these these moments that are that the very much the like the truth is weirder than fiction and like these <laughs> oh, yeah, moments that yeah. people can capture or as mine you take it, a more surreal right. Mine. Kind of... I feel like mine can be surmised by Karen Russell's barn at the end of our term which is the short story about presidents being reincarnated as horses and Rutherford B. Hayes is the main horse and he thinks his wife is a sheep like I feel like mine is just like a dumber no, <laughs> humorous no, 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 no. version of what you love not to say that Karen Russell is dumb I just like appreciate that we're, stuff, we but... are we're two brows right. on the same face <laughs> exactly <laughs> so uh, so did you have a did you have a favorite book as a kid Ooh, um, oh god. I went through a really unfortunate Ayn Rand phase. Like, <laughs> wait, really, how old were you? <laughs> really horrific. <laughs> oh, wait, what, what, how are we, yeah. I think I just want to, like, teenage years? Yeah, that was teenage years. I just want to get that off my chest. <laughs> really unfortunate summer reading that The Shrugged. Oh, man. And then, like, going through <laughs> the bibliography. Oh, no, man. as a kid. Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, yeah. That's a great one. Um, My Father's Dragon, when I was even a little oh, bit yeah. younger than... Um, but then, I think, the the series that we... That, while I was working here at the bookstore, that, that we stocked, that I was always excited to recommend to other people, were uh, His Dark Materials. Which oh, yes. I've just heard has now been remade into a TV, a TV show. Yeah, I really want okay. to do a... Uh, do, uh, Furthermore, head to head for that one. Read the first fifty pages and watch the first episode and see what that would be really prefer. great. Yeah, yeah. I, because the, that when it has been adapted to other medium, it's like really pissed some people off. Yeah, <laughs> pissed off the fans. Did you watch the movie that they made about a few years? That's ago? the one I'm thinking mm-hmm. of. I think Nicole Kidman was in it. Yes, right? yep. And I like Daniel the, Craig. Daniel Craig was was uh, I can't Lyra's uncle. Right? Yes. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Lyra? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly. There were some things about that movie that I remember being like, I just it just sort of fell short. But I remember very much Ian McKellen as the the armored bear being fantastic. Yeah, it was a yeah, great yeah, choice. Yeah. And then I believe it was Sam Elliott was the like balloon guy. <laughs> I don't the, know. The... I can't remember what they called him. I can't remember too many details about the movie. Just yeah. that I know that it was like pretty critically reviled. Yeah. Um, but the thing that always excites me about seeing an adaptation of a book that I really liked is, of course, like the hope that then, you know, someone will, will be encouraged to to go back to the actual text. Yes. I mean, the reason I had that unfortunate Ayn Rand summer, not to keep mentioning it, <laughs> is because it was mentioned in Bioshock so many times. Oh, interesting. There were so many weird anagrams of, of like, I think, Adam Ryan, like, I don't know. Anyway, so it's just this kind of, like, cascade of weirdness right. that comes about from 
encountering something and yeah. then being like, what were the people who put this thing together looking at? Right. So there was that, and also just like being reminded of how much you liked that thing as a kid. Yeah. So yeah. I, I really liked Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. I want to, I'm very interested to watch that, that show. I'm def- definitely looking forward to that. Uh, so when it comes to books, when you start a book, do you see it through all the way? Or if you're not liking it, are you the kind of person that can put a book down and just move on from it? I had this actually exact conversation with a colleague today, Mm. um, and she asked me how many books I thought I had read this year. Mm. And I said, from start to finish, probably probably only between 20 and 30. Mm -hmm. And I followed that up by saying, I probably started like 100. Wow. I, it's really easy for me to to just put something down if I'm not if I'm not super jazzed about it for whatever reason. Yeah. Or I think also like the experience of reading for me has to like take place yeah. in, in in what I'm reading is like based on how I'm feeling at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like I've tried to read the Pillars of the Earth like four <laughs> times now, <laughs> and like you can forgive someone for like yeah. not finishing Pillars of the Earth yeah. on the first time. Yeah, and. Uh, like uh, Infinite Jests, like oh, they're on yeah. the tennis court playing the game. Yeah, when I stop it. Yeah, I w- when I had to <laughs> read twice. We now. had to read Infinite Jest uh, in in grad school, and my professor assigned us. I'm pretty certain it was just the last hundred pages, and he was like, "You can go back and read the rest, but this is really <laughs> to teach the craft lesson on David Foster Wallace." He was like, "I just need the last hundred pages," and I I read that, and I remember thinking like. I don't really want to. Yeah, I'm good. I don't, I don't really want to go back and read the rest of this book. But how the hell is it so long? I was like, what is it? What's in this? There's so much of it. So that's interesting. I like. I I don't feel like I can do that. I have to. I have to. Finish you really it. have to. But I also feel like I and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I just I'm like so careful for my own personal reading. I that's really true. don't I, pick up something that I'm like I don't know if I'm gonna like this or not. I yeah. will just not pick it up if I don't think I will, which is why I have such a hard time taking other people's recommendations sometimes because I'm like, if I don't like Get it, like, I don't know. Yeah, so <laughs> so I don't know. That's really interesting. Is there ever anything besides besides those, you, know, you mentioned those two, is there anything else that you're like, I really wish that I could finish it, but I just, I picked it up and I've put it down and... Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, a number, Dr. Faust, the the Thomas Mann, oh, like yeah. all of the Thomas Mann, I've like picked up and put down. Yeah. Um, I can get through his nonfiction much more easily than I can get through his fiction. Yeah. Um, my Good Soldier Shrake mm. is another so like kind of yeah. long one that I've yeah. tried to get through, and probably, you know, for <laughs> as amazing as his lifetime of documenting this stuff and researching it meticulously, I don't know that. I will even be able to finish a single Robert Caro text. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every time he comes out with one of those, it's a freaking brick. Yeah, but, oh, <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, He's boy. an amazing, amazing, you know, researcher and right, writer. Right, but... right, right. <laughs> Come on. I think that I had looked up with, with, I mean, obviously he's most famous for the power broker. And I was chatting with a customer the other day because he's he's still going through i forget what he's writing now that John, is he, he's uh, still he's finishing, finishing stuff, i think he's right? on the he's on the fifth right? yeah and i think that i feel like he's moved somewhere 
like tropical or something. I can't remember where it was, but I feel like he moved oh, to you know, like somewhere really nice and breezy and is just like finishing them all down there. Well, I mean, the poor guy, he had a bit of, of course, you know, his publisher wanted to do like a little bit of a marketing blitz around this mm-hmm. this memoir that he put out last year called Working. Yes, that's right. And he gets all this flack from it from true diehards who were like, let him be. Yeah. Just let him finish. It's like, all right. We've waited the, so long. The man can have dinner with friends. <laughs> like, That's the way I feel people feel about uh, George R. R. Martin. Yeah. You know, right. Like, finishing those Game of Thrones. Like, Quit going to Jets games and just finish the dang books. <laughs> come on, man. Uh, and now. when you read a book, how do you keep your place in the book? Oh. I do this. I um, I take a strip of scrap paper scrap and I uh, I make what do you it, say make it longer than the than the book. <laughs> you fold I, it. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll just fold a piece of letter paper nice. into into little pieces, little strips, and then um, I will you know tear tear and make you you just make your own little bookmark. Make my own bookmark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tyler was my favorite when you'd come to work at the store. You'd bring like a bunch of like newspapers and magazines. <laughs> with you, and sometimes you'd leave them behind. <laughs> I want his copy of The Economist. Is that, is, is <laughs> always be mine. I would always have read like two paragraphs right. of it, and a dad would be downstairs while I was gift wrapping. Yeah. Like, Can I take a look at that? Yeah. Like, oh, by all means. <laughs> Sharing the reading. So, oh man, great. Thank you, Tyler. So yeah, yeah. now. Now let's talk a little bit about um, the overstory and about Richard Powers. So um, he was born 1957 out in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, he apparently spent a little bit of his childhood in Bangkok. I think like a year. I think in his teenage uh, years okay, he spent a little that. bit of time <laughs> there. He he just seems like one of those people that I, I mean, like he's a fantastic writer. He learned computer programming. He apparently can play the cello, the saxophone, the guitar, and the clarinet. Uh, he majored in English for his, uh, his undergrad and graduate, which he, he did at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Ooh. which I, I looked up and was like, oh, it's just the University of Illinois. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's just, you know, where it is. Uh, and yeah, he's been writing books since, you know, the, the late 80s. He is one of those people that was working a job and decided to quit his job and just write a book. And then, of course, the first book that he wrote after quitting his full-time job, he got published, and there it is. He just went, It's like Haruki Murakami. He was you know, running a jazz club, went to a baseball game, and then decided, you know what, I want to write a book. And he's never looked back since, which I am insanely jealous of. I don't know how the heck these people do it, but know. maybe I need to learn how to play the... Well, I know how to play the guitar and the clarinet, so I guess I just need to learn how to play the cello and the saxophone. And you then can maybe, yeah, I, yeah, I can yeah. write a book. Probably. But, you know, Tyler and I were we were discussing this a little bit that I'm familiar with Richard Powers a little bit, but it, it seems to he seems to sort of exploded this year in particular. And I don't know about you, but for some reason, I confuse this book with Underland by Robert McFarlane. And I don't know why. I think it's just because the covers are not even that similar, but they're like slightly similar. And it's also the Richard Robert thing. Um, like for some reason, for the longest time, I kept doing that. But <laughs> but I don't know. But you were saying that. But how did you read? Did you read the other? I have never read any Richard Powers. Have you I read any know. Richard Powers? Before? No, I hadn't no. either. I think he wrote. And I don't know if it's based on the same story. He wrote a book called Orfeo, is that right? Yes, Into that was the, the last one. Actually, okay. remember when that one, it was like pretty big all of a sudden. Okay. That was also one that kind of crept up out of nowhere and a lot of people started asking for it at okay. the store. And, I, you know, I hadn't read that and <laughs> I'm really not as familiar with his work. And 
I'm I'm ashamed to say that because it, <laughs> it it really struck me. But I mean, we're like being steadily led through the story. Yeah, I, <laughs> by you, someone you, who's crap. You were saying that your boyfriend has is very familiar with him. Right? Yeah, I don't know if he has a different. My boyfriend's French. I don't know if he has a different audience, or I think it's possible that he, you know, just is close friends with someone who's a Richard Towers enthusiast. Yeah. But he was a lot more familiar. Yeah. But when pressed, he still couldn't name any titles <laughs> of works and I'm hasn't gonna, read any himself. I'm, I'm going to so, give him the benefit of the, you know, the language barrier there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> was, I was going to say, was he like... He was like, you don't know Richard Powers? Yeah. I was like, yeah, what has he written? And then it like, took five seconds and he was like, oh, well, looking it up. <laughs> like, okay, super. <laughs> I love Richard Powers. He's written... I love uh, Richard Powers. <laughs> great guy. Yeah. <laughs> really great but, guy. So this book came out in 2018. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction this year. So that was back in April. It was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. And that was, Tyler was, was still here around that time. I was here. And for some reason, I, you know, I, I started the podcast with, technically with May's bestseller, which which Risa and I went back and did Pachinko. That was our bestseller right, in right, May. Right. So just a couple of months out of that, you know, May was Pachinko and then June, July, it did not show up on any of the our best-selling books of any month. And then come October, here comes the overstory and sold more copies than any other book. And I was shocked actually, because in September it was the Testaments and I was not surprised because okay. that was the big okay. release yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. But in October, we had The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. And with Oprah's pick with Barack Obama putting it on his. I was certain that it was going to be that, and then Again. I don't think I don't think Water Dancer sold as many copies as Overstory or Testaments that month. Funny enough, so I was just really shocked. It's in paperback, and so many of the things that I've done on the podcast have been you know sort of like new fiction, and then all of a sudden some of these things pop up that are like these old paperbacks, and I really I was looking this up. It's still getting a lot of attention. There's still a lot of you know people writing about this book and putting it out there. I just can't really figure out sort of the the reason why all of a sudden in October people are interested in buying it again. And it could be that I finally got it back in stock. Like maybe we were just out of it for most oh, of the yeah. summer and, and finally it was there. But even now, I think we've sold 12 copies over the last two weeks, which is fantastic for a book for us. Yeah, we yeah, don't yeah, sell yeah. that many yeah, yeah. every week. <laughs> so I don't know if it's just maybe it's, you know, the end of the year, people want to pick up that Pulitzer again. It's like, finally, it's time. Let me get on that. But... It does have a pretty glorious, big winner of the Pulitzer yeah. Prize, as you would want. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, and I mean, I think that part of it, too, is sort of the message of the book really might resonate with people and in, in that. You know, I keep finding these articles that are like, you know, Richard Powers, the overstory is the first true instance of, of eco-fiction or stuff like that, of, of oh, you know, really pushing for, for nature in a time when perhaps nature cannot, you know, push for itself or, or that voice is limited. And actually, you know, he was saying that he he was living in California. I think he was living in San Francisco. And he said to unwind, he used to drive up and, and take a walk among these big redwood trees. And he learned that from you know he was he, i think he was living in silicon valley and he he learned that the pretty much the reason that silicon valley exists or, or that the the this place exists is that all used to be redwood trees and 98 percent of the redwood trees there were cut down and it it was by the the power and the will of regular people not politicians or anyone who who stood up against the the logging companies and stuff and said you know don't cut down the rest of these trees and now there are still some redwood forests left but by no means close to what it used to be. Right, and right. I think that really struck him. And he said that, you know, he started 
writing and he started based on that idea. And then he said, when when the election happened in 2016, and it was very clear that, you know, some of the the eco-friendly policies in place were about to be taken back or just pushed to the brink even farther, he really felt like he needed to write this book. And then he moved to the Smoky Mountains. I don't know where. He must live somewhere in Tennessee or something, okay. but, you know, now he lives out there and really connects with nature. I found this one article that was like, Richard Powers writes when nature tells him to write. And I'm like, all right, I know you're Richard Powers and you won the Pulitzer Prize, but why do you get to write when nature says to write? And, you know, geez. This man gets up at five yeah. in the morning and probably writes for some while. He does, actually. He said oh, that great, his, writing, his writing routine is to wake up and he's one of those people that uh, every day he writes a thousand words and however long okay. it takes him is what it takes him. So he's, you know, sometimes that'll take me two hours and then the rest of the day is mine. And sometimes he says, I wake up at, you know, six and I'm still writing at midnight just because I want to get those oh, thousand words that. that I feel. Right. I, that, and that, that's the luxury. Right. Oh my gosh. That's that sounds, that sounds great. That sounds great to be able to do that and know at the other end of that, your publisher will publish whatever thousand words yeah. you're writing because... I feel like if I tried to write a thousand words every day, I would get very frustrated at what I wrote like every other day and be like, this is crap. So, <laughs> I would be moving commas around. Yeah. <laughs> counting so words. while you were here, what do you remember about this book? Oh, just that it was selling. It was selling decently well mm. while I was here. And it sounds like, I mean, and I'm happy that, that it's had this kind of recent up, uptick. Um, but just people would bring it to the register and ask, you know, what whether I could potentially recommend it to them. And of course I would, you know, while checking their other items, flip to the back and yeah. read the couple of sentences yeah. on the back, which give this very descriptive language of the story, the narrate the the narration of the story kind of I don't know if they use unfold or growing out like the concentric wings yeah. of a tree. I don't know how this mistaken impression which I will describe, got kind of caught. <laughs> but I thought that this was a story that was told from the perspective of trees. I thought it was about and by trees <laughs> talking about their place, talking about their, uh, I don't know, their their lives yeah. in a single forest, communicating with one another. I thought it was kind of like the, the, the narrative version of, of how, tr what was the, the nonfiction book that came out? Like how trees communicate uh, or yeah it was a couple. Um, yeah the, there's a peter there peter Wolf the little book. or something yeah um and then there's like you know because yeah, yeah obviously there has been a lot of interest in in just horticulture in trees right. i mean we had someone come in at one point uh late in my brief career asking about tree bathing and i didn't know, <laughs> or i'm sorry forest bathing forest bathing, bathing and i didn't know what it was and it actually it's put in words an experience that I think I've had without without labeling it as such, which is just like this like crazy feeling that you experience when you walk and, and you kind of are around a bunch of trees that are kind of enveloping you. So anyway, I describe why we would have a book about that. I don't you, know. You know it's just the one. We didn't have Whatever. a book. We right now, she, she got a coloring book. Um, so anyway, I was recommending this book, and I said, "Yeah, it's about trees, by trees, for trees, for, for tree lovers, and uh, made of trees in some sense." Yes, too. actually, now that you said that, I was looking on the inside of this book, and it, I believe it says. 
It's printed on 100% recycled paper. By using recycled paper in place of paper made with 100% virgin fiber, the paperback first printing has saved 637 trees, 614,962 gallons of water, 206, 700,000 pounds of greenhouse gas emissions, wow. 62,925 pounds of solid waste. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I wonder if that's something that he insisted on or... I'm I I feel confident just in saying yes yes yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'd be surprised <laughs> I mean I I would hope too that the publisher would uh, would say really gosh you know we have this whole book about trees we can't print it on, <laughs> yeah. on, on stuff, plastic so, yeah. on single use plastic yeah so I I'm yeah it's funny to me that you know it it would be one thing if you know well Tyler was here he remembers you know this selling a whole lot but it, yeah i had that same impression earlier in the year of you know it sold fairly well and you always we always try to stock up on whatever wins the pulitzer but i remember even after it won the pulitzer it's not like it was flying off the shelves you know i, I it wasn't on the table it wasn't on our paperback table for a long time and then now if i don't have it on there i'm like where is this what is hey, get the overstory back out there so all right so before we before we get into these first 50 pages i I think that a big difference between you and me, and it's something I touched on with Scott, though. I, are you? Do you feel like you're a prose reader? You, you just you really appreciate when somebody has good language in their book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of the reason going back to to why I'm so readily able to or willing to just like put a book down if I'm not mm. super jazzed about it. Mm -hmm. If I'm not liking the way a story is told, I'm. I, I think it's probably even more than 50-50, it's probably like 60-40 between just how the language is used to describe the story yeah. and, and to outline the kind of contours of the narrative yeah. versus the the content of that narrative. Yeah. I think I have to be really interested. And I think that's, I, for me then, because I, I, I am very much a plot reader and I think that goes into sort of how I choose the book because if the if the plot doesn't strike me as something nothing really can save it for me even if it is very well written there's not a lot in it for me and so i will sort of not even pick it up because like, yeah. you know the plot doesn't sound that interesting you know and there were in grad school i had that experience a lot of like i i'm reading this and i i like the way this is written i can tell this person is a really good writer but i just i wasn't enjoying it i did not like yeah. it and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I was sort of moved on from it so but all right so let's let's get into these first 50 pages and actually before before we jump right in after you learned that it was not trees telling their own <laughs> stories did you know that it I was, was quickly <laughs> disabused of that notion <laughs> tyler put it down he didn't want to do the podcast anymore uh i i actually thought that it was i know it says in novel but i thought it was just sort of a loose connection or, or unconnected group of short pieces and i have since come to learn that while each chapter does follow different characters that that does they do all sort of eventually end up running into each other by okay. the end of the book okay. but i you know even when i was reading it i i just sort of i thought oh okay this is just like a lot of short pieces inspired by trees and inspired and stories each about that section then would be given a specific tree that would right. somehow that's make an emblem or symbolize yeah. And that's sort of what we, we run into in these first 50 pages is we really, in those pages, we have time for basically what feels like two short stories or two yes. beginnings to, yeah. to two different stories. And the first one very much deals with a chestnut tree and the second one with a mulberry tree. So I was like, oh, okay, this is just going to be sort of different yeah. trees. And then I, you know, I, I later I sort of learned, oh, okay, this is, these characters do 
come back to us. But so I always tease people because uh, I always ask, did you did you read the quotes that begin the book? Nobody ever does. <laughs> the, um, I didn't recognize the third name, yes. um, which makes sense. And then there was what? There was the Ralph Waldo Emerson. Right, and which definitely makes sense. I did. I mean, yeah, of course. And I, I did actually read them. Yeah, but, there you go. Um, <laughs> but the... Honestly, I think they should put these at the the end mm. of the first chapter. I think that's mm. the more meaningful place. For yeah, that because I'm often like put into a specific frame when I read something like that that is then totally discarded by the end of the absolutely. And so, yeah, <laughs> I can't for a minute tell you like what. And especially this too, because the the book begins with basically one long page or or two pages worth of, of sort of a prologue so yeah. you kind of quickly forget about the quotes i think a book like this and not to you know rag on richard powers from the start but i, I would have been happy with just one ralph waldo emerson quote i don't think you need three different quotes i hate when people do that and actually i like i mean they're fairly long quotes i like something you know short and sweet at the very beginning and so yeah. i don't know you kind of lose those but this first page is it's sort of a like a prologue uh a very very prose heavy sort of look at how trees and humans coexist and connect and and here richard powers sort of gives us it, you know it's like a woman with her she's sitting on the ground leaning against a tree and the tree is whether or not she can actually understand the right. tree the tree is connecting with her and speaking to her the the first line of the book is first there was nothing then there was everything and then we go from there. So he, it really does feel like sort of the, the a genesis of the beginning of the book that will have to do with trees. From the Alpha to the Omega, there's a kind of like real Christian. I mean, lightly, but but clearly referencing like Christian. Yes, Christian. I mean, yeah. First, there was nothing. Then yeah, there was yeah, everything. Yeah. Is very, very that. And here is where I I come to see just how I do think Richard Powers is a very good writer. The prose is very heavy. <laughs> I mean, at least for me, it it very is. He he does he does a great job a lot with these sort of um, he has these good picks these good verbs. So for something like you know he's talking about different trees, persimmons and walnuts set out their bribes and rowans their blood red, blood red clusters. Oh man, that was a bad one to choose. But setting out their bribes is a great. I think that's just a great way of of saying that that thing he does a lot of those great things where he sort of has these like words that you don't expect or these great ways of it's of really rich saying something. The, yeah the, the descriptions of obviously of the trees and of all the different parts of the trees yeah a chorus of living wood sings to the woman if your mind were yeah. only a slightly greener thing we'd drown you in meaning I wrote the idea that. yeah the idea of getting drowned in meaning is is just incredible to me so oh tyler and you are a you were the type of person who writes in your books there yeah you go. that was a question i, I, I forgot actually, to ask i didn't you. even purchase this from the bookstore yet but i'm, <laughs> I'm oh, going to have no to. i no i i purchased it for you it's yours oh oh yeah man, thank you yeah well, thank you <laughs> i think actually it's i saw that you borrowed it in there i uh, yeah. <laughs> there's a ton of frowny faces also <laughs> so oh no, we'll get oh, no. but yeah oh. i'm a heavy annotator there you of go books. nice i have my little notebook here next to me, so i can't bury right in them so okay so the first little uh section that we get is called nicholas hull and, and that one begins with now is the time of chestnuts and yes. we get a, a, a story that really revolves around chestnut trees and before we get into this i i do have to just share that my dad grew up in binghamton new york and he does talk about 
remembering all of the chestnut trees when he was a kid. He was born in the late 40s, uh, and he, he does remember when chestnut trees were everywhere. Okay. And it is true. I mean, what happens in this this first chapter actually happened where there was a chestnut blight, and now there's, like, none left. But that They're was really... in 1904. The right, and there's... Oh, I thought there was another one later. Oh, maybe was, there yeah. must have been. There must have... I mean, I must have... I mean... <laughs> Uh, because of course, when I when I read that at first, I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> your dad's old, Andy. <laughs> no, 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 no. When I read about the chestnut blight, yeah. I was like, yep. this is something that actually happened. Yeah. Um, and, and that's it is funny to me. There's so many. And you, know, you think about streets in in your town or wherever, and how many there's Elm Street and there's Chestnut Street and there's you know there. But yeah, and those Chestnut yeah, Streets yeah, yeah. must have been named Chestnut Street for a reason, and now yeah. there's there's yeah, yeah. none left. So. So yeah, I did. I did think of my dad when I when I first started that. I also want to just add that I think that roast chestnuts taste like ham. Do you know I recognize the smell, <laughs> and I'm sure that I've had them in the past. Yep. And when they're described as like ultra savory and meaty, yeah, I they just straight uh, up. beyond that I don't know. <laughs> straight up tastes like ham to me. Risa loves them. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> they taste like ham. So all right. Anyway, so is there this, any protein? I mean, I just, I'm sure there is. It, could sure it be a nice ham substitute? Is it that <laughs> Maybe. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm trademarking <laughs> that, all right? <laughs> so the, the story begins very early in Brooklyn, uh, Prospect Hill, and it begins with a Norwegian immigrant, uh, and he's participating in literally just shaking down these chestnut trees and eating them up. And it, it basically talks about how many chestnuts there were and, and how there were so many around that you could do that. Uh, his name is Jorgen, and Jorgen meets a woman named Vi, Vi Pows, an Irish girl, and they get married, and they move out west to, yeah, they move out west to Des Moines, and, and what we find is the 1850s. He doesn't say right up front, but then we get, uh, I think we get a mention of the the cold the cold winter of 62 or something, so it must be like the late 50s, and then they, they get married and move out. Um, and when they move out there, Jorgen takes with him a few chestnut seedlings and plants them outside of their farm. I think he discovers them in the in, jacket that he was wearing when he first met her. Yeah, when right? he, I think when he in the spring he proposes to her, and yeah, they're, they're amazing gathering gathering chestnuts there. So they th this all moves very very quickly. They have children. They plant the chestnut seeds. They start to grow. Um, the children grow, the trees grow, the civil war comes and goes, and uh, through that all, they lose some of the chestnut trees to various things, to drought. One of them, I believe, is struck by lightning, and eventually only one chestnut tree remains. So Jorgen, at the end of this first little bit there, he passes away, and he, he passes on this the farm to his son, uh, John, and John starts this tradition of taking a picture of the chestnut tree from the same spot every month and this sort of becomes a family tradition as that goes on and now i mean here is where i i definitely still thought that we were in short story land here i didn't know that this was and part of that is because it just moves so fast that's like one page you're you're with jorgen and the next page he's dead and then the next page john is and it's i mean like it literally is just like it reminded me of of almost like a hundred years of solitude or something mm -hmm. like that where characters are are uh, in one sentence in a single sentence like introduced and mm. then dispatched for like yeah. right away yeah. like or you know something terrible happens and they pass away and just to get to where he wants to go which right. is to describe the narrative of you know the the whole or the 
Oh, well, that he's actually interested in the, right, the person. Right. It just feels very much like a, a short story technique to me. You know, I've I, I read short stories like this where, you know, right, you're trying to get, you're trying to yeah. go fast to a place where maybe then the story settles a little bit on. And this one does sort of, by the end, it does sort of settle. But yeah. but still, I, I wrote down in my notes, for such a long book, it moves very, very fast. Like, it, it just keeps cranking out. But not evenly also, which right. I liked. Yeah. I think that was something that I really liked about it was just that that you there's a momentum to it that mm -hmm. then just as quickly it's almost like it's shifting shifting gears or something yeah so john like i said john begins to take this this photograph uh and it's carried on you know eventually john passes away and this tradition is carried on through his son frank who barely has any time to snap right. any photographs before he goes off to europe and dies in world war one and then his son starts taking up and Again, I, I'm trying to find the point where um, where Frank... Oh, yeah. Pure dumb fate leads Frank yeah. Sr. out of the cauldron of St. Michel only to liquefy him with a mortar shell in the Argonne near Montfaucon. Like, it's like, oh, he's like, oh, no, he's dead. Yes. But again, liquefy <laughs> is such a great verb for... I mean, it's a disgusting verb for that uh, for that image, but it is a really, really well-chosen no, verb. No, I mean... <laughs> I love when you can do that with a verb instead mm -hmm. of using a ton of adverbs mm -hmm. or something like that. And he really, he, he also, I think he changes momentum a little bit with, I don't have a clear example, but, but even in what you just read, mm -hmm. like, changes momentum on the sentence level where he'll do like a longer sentence and, and kind of yeah. stick with it and yep. then like really quickly get to, to a verb like liquefy yeah. and, and get rid of a character. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, the flow of his writing is very much... Uh, like a gerund in there so you know sentence comma the rest of the sentence and then he'll end with a shorter sentence like you were saying he definitely like in in uh, the paragraph right before that um, when America at last joins the world conflagration comma Frank Hull is sent to France with the second cavalry regiment the last sen uh, sentence in that little paragraph what the boy lacks in imagination he makes up for in obedience yeah. so yeah, there's yeah, the, yeah. the comma one that gives us a little bit and then ends with something much faster which again is a very short story thing to me i don't know why it just reminds me of when i was reading short stories in grad school like that's what it no but that, definitely i mean reminds me of even in getting to to like the the whole of the section like there unless you are aware of the fact that it i mean i i actually wasn't aware of the fact that the, that the stories will sort of mm -hmm. start to come together a yeah. little bit but it they do read like self-enclosed yeah. kind of capsules or units. Absolutely. So Frank Jr. carries on this tradition. He keeps snapping the picture of the tree even when he sort of feels like why the hell am I doing this? There is a part where he says, it's very possible that I hate this tree, he thinks to himself. <laughs> so he keeps it going, keeps the farm afloat through the Great Depression, through World War II, and eventually he passes on the photo tradition to his son, Eric. And I mean, I've, I think I've beaten to death this, this idea that things move very quickly but on page 16 the whole paragraph of that page is literally just ticks off in the the whole family the whole death in the south pacific the caterpillars and the john deers parading through the shed dozens of joyous weddings christenings graduations adulteries the handiwork of heroin in agent orange that comes home with the nephews from not i mean he literally the, the most of the 20th century he he goes through in a paragraph and we get to eric and Eric is then the father of the titular character, Nicholas, who the, the story was about. And actually, right about here is where I was like, where is Nicholas? We keep getting all these yeah. whole men. Where is this Nicholas guy? Where is this? 
Eric keeps up the family tradition. And then finally we get to Nicholas who has come back to the house for Christmas. And he is with mm -hmm. his mother and his father and his grandmother. His grandfather has passed away. But here is where we sort of settle the momentum because now we stick with Nick for a little bit. But I think I think just one thing I would mention mm -hmm. is that there hardly any motivation is given for why they're doing this. Yes. Right. The the picture taking of the, the tree, actual right? picture taking. Yep. It's kind of a curiosity for all of them. Some yep. of them claim that, you know, some of them are, are doing it as a, a promise to the previous right. generation or to the generations going right. back. But but none of them can think of a really, truly compelling reason as to why they're doing this. Although eventually it's mentioned maybe it changes the way you think right um and this is a line that i guess comes up comes up a couple of times yeah. in this chapter but yeah i i for i i paused here when i was reading and asked myself what what i was invested in so i'm going to throw that question to you is there a character you're invested in here are you invested in the tree or right now are you still reading simply because the prose is so good it's damn good prose <laughs> I don't know if you've read The Tenth of December by George Saunders. No, I've read a lot of George Saunders, but I've okay. never read any of the stories in that collection. If I'm being perfectly honest, the story in some sense reminded me of that short story from the George Saunders collection. And that's why, I mean, for multiple reasons I kept reading, but right. I wanted to see how it played out hmm. in this chapter, not knowing that this chapter would give way to a completely different narrative with right. completely different characters. Right. I wanted to keep reading because I really liked that George Saunders. And the only reason I read that story was because my, my student actually had to read it for oh, his English cool. class. Um, but it's this kind of discussion of a Midwestern family yeah. and people are described more through their actions mm -hmm. or, or in a way through the verbs, mm -hmm. <laughs> through the verbiage right. of what goes on right. in this little short story more than, than and better than adjectives or mm -hmm. strings of, of descriptors can get to them so i kind of wanted to read for that yeah um and you know now that you say that i feel like richard Pappas' writing reminds me a lot of george saunders i think they both do that sort of you know gerund and then short sentence and you know a longer sentence short sentence they, they mix it up with that kind of thing um Wow, I didn't, I didn't even put that together. And now well, you say that, I'm like, wow, there it is. Yeah, it yeah. And, and, and to yeah. further just go into the context, like you describing Richard Powers as someone who has an interest in engineering makes sense because George Saunders, I guess, um, earlier in his career, he was a technical writer, right? I think he was writing almost... Yeah, he used to work... Actually, he lived in Rochester where I lived for a while and he used to work for yeah, yeah, like yeah. a company, a technical company. I think he has a... a piece in one of his nonfiction things um i think it's in brain dead megaphone all about how he i think he did sort of the same thing he just kind of ditched what he was doing and uh yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he and his wife and they just had a baby and he went back to school for writing and yeah he just started yeah, writing stuff and there was i remember him saying there was a point where he he you know george saunders i really like george saunders and he does write very weird and sort of you know surreal things um and there was a point where he decided that he didn't want to write those sorts of things and he needed to be serious. And he was like, that's when my writing got really, really bad. And my, my professor <laughs> oh, no. was very dismayed with me. They were like, why did you do that? And he was like, you know, I wanted to be a serious writer. I wasn't a... And they kind of found his way back to, to you know, writing the weird and surreal things. And now he, he still lives in New York. He teaches at Syracuse, which is not far from where I grew up. I have lots of connections to George Saunders is all I'm saying. George, do you want to come on the <laughs> podcast? And let me know, buddy. So here we settle on to, to Nicholas Hull. And 
Nick is he is I think he's twenty five. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. yeah he that. had um, you know comes from a long line of farmers, but decided he really needed to go to art school, and and part of this is sort of inspired by going to his grandfather's house and seeing this stack of photographs of this chestnut tree. It had always sort of fascinated him. So Nick is a little bit different from the rest of his family, but you know, he doesn't push it too much. Uh, and so the, the first part of this, this story sort of ends with Nick going downstairs one morning, you know, right before Christmas, his grandfather, or I'm sorry, his grandmother, father and mother are all in the kitchen. And, you know, he's, has the previous day convinced them to go out to Omaha to go to this museum. And when he comes down and asks who's ready to go, they all say, you know, we don't really want to go. Okay. Nicholas says, heck with you all. I'll be back for dinner. Good, good stuff there, Nick. Um, so he decides, yeah, he goes out to Omaha he goes to the art museum. And as he's trying to make his way back to Des Moines, he gets hit with this terrible, terrible snowstorm. And he almost wrecks the car like two or three times, uh, and he does. I can't remember if he does or does not have snow tires on his car, but that was something like that entry level. Yeah, entry beginning of the season. <laughs> He's a Midwesterner, and his father wouldn't be his father without putting virgin snow tires on the car. Yeah, that's which is what my father insists on doing. <laughs> and when I first moved down here, the first winter I lived here, I said to Risa, "Aren't you going to put snow tires on the car?" And she said. What are you talking about? We don't need snow tires. And she's someone who went to school in Rochester, New York, too. So she knows. But I don't think I could have made it through winters where I was from without snow tires. But down really? here, you just don't, you don't need them. Don't, do <laughs> don't need it. So Nick drives. He's driving back. He ends up having to sort of stay the night in his car at a rest stop. And when he gets back to the house, he bursts through the door. And everybody is dead because of the propane tank that has sort of seeped into the house. It's the propane heater. He goes in and his whole family is just dead on the ground. And that's that. I want to read the last sentence of this. So he goes, he, he runs outside. He just falls into the snow. He really can't believe what's happening. And the last sentence of this, of this first chapter is this. All its profligate twigs click in the breeze as if in this moment too, so insignificant, so transitory, will be written into its rings and prayed over by branches that wave their semaphores against the bluest of Midwestern winter skies. Referring, of course, to the chestnut tree. And, I mean, a little look into my feelings on this. That's that's too much of a sentence for me. Okay. okay. I, I, I think you probably would feel the opposite, but that, and maybe it's, maybe I've just, the, the drilled into my head of, uh, you know, I, I feel like when we would be in workshops, you know, one of my professor, professors would talk about there's like too many images in too there for me. Profligate twigs, <laughs> the, a transitory moment, something written into rings by branches and semaphores. And I'm just I'm lost by profligate twigs and semaphores against the, the sky. And so I think when when I think there are moments for me where Richard Powers tries a little too hard. Okay. And I like okay. the I like some of the, the shorter things and you know you got to end your first chapter on a good sentence oh, yeah, yeah, totally yeah. but that one but there for is me something, was like huh. I mean there is something about being overtaken or overwhelmed with mm-hmm. the imagery of this horrible thing that you've just encountered yeah which is the realization that your family probably or perhaps while staying up to make sure that you were all right yeah. like left the space heater on yeah. and you've just in ca- you've basically you've just walked into the house to find that and it is a sentence that has all of these different images and, and kind of sounds and 
even the time i don't know i think you're you're kind of drawn into the future with it because hmm. the blue midwestern winter skies maybe describes not only that day but mm-hmm. but the following days when yep. the magnitude of the thing having i don't know there yeah. the magnitude of of all of this just like hasn't even set in and all he sees is the tree yeah i mean it's a, it's it's a nice way of bringing it back to the tree he sort of doesn't yeah. lose focus of this on this chestnut tree through this first section and we end on a moment with this tree and again that it's an active thing i mean the, the story obviously isn't told by the tree but it is sort of actively processed through the tree the moment is being written into the tree's rings is sort of what he's saying with that but i do have i do have more questions though about how you imagine um things like what does this house look like mm-hmm. That's been built up over generations yeah. and was once part of a huge farm and now long now is just the house basically. Yeah. They mentioned that they've like leased out the house. How close is the tree to this house? Right. You know, is it the type of thing where through every window you see the tree, yeah. or or yeah. is it a little bit far off? But right. It's just the only thing that exists in a single field, yeah. and that's what you're staring at constantly. In my head, it's this weird. It's almost. Did you ever watch Courage the Cowardly Dog when you were a kid? Oh, it's been a minute, but... Do you remember the house in that? How there was, like, nothing around? It was just this house <laughs> and this of, uh... tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, okay, like, that's okay. weirdly how I imagine this. Okay. Is, like, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure that it's not. There has to be houses that are close by, but... Well, neither, I mean, neither of us is a Midwesterner, so no, I feel no, like no. we don't necessarily but, have a taste for that kind of flat land. Right. I, yeah, that's true. But I, I did grow up in a pretty... There were a lot of farms in, yeah, in yeah, Cortland, yeah. and I know you're from... From, yeah, Pennsylvania, from Pennsylvania, where there's probably a lot. I mean, I, I had friends that, you know, lived in a house where there wasn't, it's not like the house, there was a house close by, but it wasn't next door. You know, there was a yard. That's true. Yeah, could, yeah, yeah. So in my head, that's lighter. that's sort of how I'm imagining it. And maybe it's all the descriptions of bleak Midwestern winter skies. Too, yeah, you know, yeah, like, no. Just this giant same. tree. I had this, like, this giant tree next yep. to a house and absolutely nothing else. Yes, yeah. And maybe a single road that right. I think at one point is described as a dirt road that yes. then is modernized slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. It's <laughs> an interesting, an interesting thing. So we leave poor Nick and switch over to 1948 in China. So we're introduced to the character Ma Xuan, who's a young Chinese man uh, who is about to leave for engineering school in Pittsburgh. And his father is is sending him off. And we get sort of this weird relationship where yeah. his father seems to know everything and poor, poor Sichuan is just kind of a dummy. His dad is sort of lamenting this, uh, furthered by the idea that they, they seem to be trying to converse to each other in English because he is about to go to the United States and, you know, he... He will he will say things and his dad's like, oh, God, your English is terrible. You're never going to make it there. But his father is very aware, you know, as from being from a wealthy merchant family. It's 1948 and his father is very aware that the communists are coming and they are going to take everything that they have. So as Sichuan is leaving, his father gives him some priceless family artifacts, <laughs> these three rings with they're made of jade and they have these really intricate trees carved into them and then a, a buddhist scroll and th- the family is they are muslim chinese i don't think they're they're of the the uh going to the bastion of christianity in right pittsburgh, in pittsburgh the bastion of christianity i don't think they're uyghur which is the um that's the like large no, muslim yeah, minority yeah. group that right now is sort of being well 
you guys can look that up yourselves. I don't want the Chinese government silencing furthermore. <laughs> uh, no, there's uh, there is some trouble with this minority group at the moment. But so yeah, but they have this this beautiful old Buddhist scroll, and and he entrusts him with it. There's a nice scene where uh, you know Ma Xuan gets to the United States and he's going through customs on the West Coast. They've baked the rings into mooncakes, but this Love scroll that. is is still there. And he has to take it out for the, the customs agent there. The racist and, customs agent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who, of course, and of course, actually, I thought this was a, a nice touch that Ma Si Xuin becomes Winston Ma. Uh, you know, he gets an, an anglicized name. Um, and so the customs agent, oh, by the way, uh, he puts down his date of birth on there. Uh, what is it? He's, uh, he was born on the 7th day of the 11th month in the Chinese lunar calendar, but he just puts down November 7th, 1925, which is my birthday. Not 1925, ah. but November 7th is my birthday. It's weird to see my birthday written into a book. That's just weird. Happy <laughs> birthday. Oh, gosh, it's been long <laughs> since then. So, yeah, so he has to open up this, this scroll and... This is being recorded on Obi's birthday. This is not. <laughs> it's practically Christmas. <laughs> so the customs agent makes him open up this scroll and she says, what is this? And he says, well, it's 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 these men. And she says, what's wrong with the men? Happiness. They see the true thing. She says, what is that? And says, Xi Xuan knows nothing about Chinese Buddhism. He only has a rough estimate of English. Now he's supposed to explain enlightenment to this American woman official. The true thing mean human beings so small and life so very big. And the agent snorts, they just worked this out. Then she says, lots of, lots, lots of luck in Pittsburgh and sends him on his way. And then again, we move back into this very fast moving thing. Yep. Sichuan becomes Winston Ma. He marries a woman named Charlotte. Countless years pass. They have three daughters. There's a mulberry tree planted out. I think that they live just outside of, not far from Chicago, right there in Illinois. The girls are, are eating their breakfast under this mulberry tree. And, oh, I'm sorry. I think it's Indiana that they live in, not Illinois. But anyway, they're, they're eating their breakfast under this tree. And they're sort of talking about how they don't know much about their father's past. Uh, one of the girls mentions that somebody at school, you know, calls all Chinese uh, communist rat eaters. You know, uh, clearly they're being picked on a little. But clearly Winston does not want to share any big part of his his upbringing or, or anything like that. And then we just we keep moving. Winston enjoys fishing. He likes taking his family on trips. And uh, there's a very, very memorable one through uh, Yellowstone. He likes to take these notes uh, in Yellowstone. But he does show one of his daughters the rings and the yes. scroll at yeah, one yeah, point yeah. in time. His oldest daughter, Mimi. And she is the only one that sees these. Then from there, we have this trip to Yellowstone. I am going to pause here to mention a particular moment in, in this story. So uh, page 36. They're in the car, they're driving, and this is his wife. Charlotte gives up trying to control them. No one suspects yet, but she's already begun to slip into the long private place that each passing year will deepen. She sits in the front seat, navigating maps for her husband and humming Chopin nocturnes under her breath. Dementia starts here in these days of quiet automotive sainthood. Quiet automotive sainthood is a lovely image, but I think that my other big problem with this book is that it just made me feel sad, and that I had to that is just yeah, after I read that. It's just a heartbreaking thing in the middle of what is pretty much a there's a there's a little part. Um, I mean, the the they make they make the girls practice their instruments in the back of the car, which I actually found very funny. <laughs> um, it's easier for Mimi on trumpet and Carmen on clarinet than it is for Amelia and her violin. I like it says they forget to pack books. 
The two older girls stare at their sister for dozens of Nebraska miles until Amelia breaks down and cries. It passes the time. That was one of the few moments in this book where I actually laughed. And then yeah. immediately he follows it with, oh, and also the wife has dementia. And yeah. that's just like, it really upset me into the point of like, it made me a little mad. And I, you know, that's just, it is, it is me. I don't like things that make me feel overtly <laughs> sad. And, and that did. And Richard. I, you know, Builds you up and he breaks you down. Right, exactly. He just soul crushing, soul crushing year. Uh, but you know, again, I, I I sort of feel like I had the same pause to hear of that I did with the last chapter of like what exactly am I invested in? Like what is the what is the thing that is carrying? I wasn't super interested in the jade rings. That seemed to be a big moment for Winston showing his daughter. He's the character that I'm most interested in here, but we're moving so fast and I know so little about him, I feel like, besides that, you know, he doesn't want to talk about his past very much. I didn't know where my investment was again. And so I will throw that question to you. For uh, me in this chapter, maybe it was um, how items were described hmm. and how those items were described by different people over time and the kind of translations. So I, Winston's father describing the, the metaphysics and the philosophy behind each object mm. as he's giving them to Winston for safekeeping then gets translated to a really curt kind of uh, simplification mm. of past, present, and future for those three rings. And he describes the, um, the Buddhist scroll, which has these kind of... Uh, circular portraits painted on them mm -hmm. of, of uh, famous Buddhist figures, famous Chinese Buddhist figures, then become Chinese superheroes right. for his daughters. For his daughters, yeah. <laughs> and I liked seeing how the, the story was kind of translated for each successive generation in mm -hmm. increasingly simplified but almost more essential ways. Yeah. Because the meaning was inevitably going to get lost over time. Right, right, right. But that doesn't make it any less worth keeping or worth transmitting. Yeah. It's very interesting to me that you, I feel like you you are able to find these these small moments or these small things that, that very much interest you and, and keep you reading. Whereas for me, I, I had to pause and say, what am I invested in here? Because there wasn't some sort of like sort of big overarching thing that, that kept me invested. And I think, uh, again, that comes down to you're enjoying the words on the page. You're enjoying, you know, how things are being yeah, described really or how Richard Powers is, is getting into these situations of, of, you know, generations moving, moving through each other. But here, uh, eventually we come to Mimi being old enough. She goes off to, to college and then she's out of college and she takes a job in, in the Pacific Northwest. And she, there's a scene where she calls her mom and clearly her mom is sort of starting to lose it. She's just speaking to Mimi in Latin. Uh, and then the next part Winston shoots himself in the head in the backyard and uh, the three girls have to come home and sort of pick up the pieces because as Richard Power says her mother is helpless uh, she says her your father doesn't want to hurt us he has some ideas and this is after he shot himself so clearly she does you know not know what's going on and and the three girls do as best they can to kind of keep things going they they have to deal with all the paperwork and there's a, a very interesting scene where Mimi has to, she basically has she to deal with to, the Yeah, gun. she wants to get rid of the gun. Yep. And the way that she thinks to do this is to take it back to the gun shop. Yeah. But I guess maybe not knowing how to get there or not knowing 
or not driving to get there. She she just puts it on the back of her bike and is afraid because she's about to get pulled over. Yeah. And so as soon as she sees like the oh I loved this line the hiccup a hiccup of ultimate authority is yes. how he has described the the pop of the siren right. behind her as that, she's biking with this little right. coffin. That single just, thing that you hear sometimes the police car just go. Bloop. Yeah, and that's and it. Yep, it and I, I know exactly how she feels because yep. you're like, oh, God. Yep. So she's afraid that, that she's going to get pulled over, have this this gun that she technically legally owns but yeah. is not in her name in right. any way is going to like be the undoing of her life and career. But, of course, she was like, you need to signal with your hand when you're turning. Yeah. Which is, Right, you know, right. Good advice for anyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> she makes it out of there alive and, and <laughs> intact. And I mean, Winston leaves behind a poem, and, and this section leaves on Mimi sort of looking back and, and trying to figure out just why. She only wants peace, but this is where she must live now. And the shadow of the bent mulberry, the inexplicable poem, the fisherman's song. And again, he brings it back to the tree at the end, and Winston mm-hmm. shoots himself underneath the tree. So again, it always sort of comes back to this. We only have time for just a little bit. I mean, it's like three pages of the next short story uh, is Adam Apich, who is the youngest of four children. And each of the children have their own tree in, in the backyard of their of their childhood home. We don't know much about the family. We know uh, that Adam someday grows up to teach psychology. There's a, there's a sort of mention of that. But also that uh, I believe it's his mother or his father who at a dinner party one night calls him retarded. And, you know, so they clearly think that there's something wrong with, with Adam. It's 1968. So, you know, that's, that's the only word they have for, for whatever, you know, that they, they can describe Adam. Uh, and, and the story really ends before this Apage piece, the, the piece about the Apage family can really get going. So unfortunately for us, we don't get to the part where Adam is, you know, devoured by bears and his father <gasps> goes off to Vietnam and dies of a both a heroin overdose and being cut in half by what whatever unimaginably horrible oh, thing I Richard were, Powers. I, thought you no, were I don't actually know. Actually distra- actually. I was like, "Oh, wow, well, you're talking <laughs> about the richest of language is, and imagery yeah, in a single sentence." Decapitated by a sounds... roller coaster at Disney World. <laughs> it just... all happens so fast. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, so there we are. We're at the end of the, that first 50 pages. Is there anything in there that we we discussed that we didn't touch on that you wanted to mention oh i mean well i i had a question for i mean yeah. the as we're speaking about it and i guess it's probably maybe you would call this overwrought but <laughs> but i mean the the idea of the family tree mm-hmm. is is kind of brought to life in yeah. both of these stories so far yeah. and and the tree is like a not only like a way of of describing or keeping these these stories intergenerationally together but also there's an actual tree in each right, one right. and and do do you expect more of the same or uh do you know i mean no i i i don't know exactly what happens in the rest i okay. very much imagined that we will have i mean the next those, those the first story starts way back in the 1800s and right. then the second two sort of start a little bit closer to, to where we are 48 and, and 1968 but I definitely expect more characters with more long lineage. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the, the family tree thing, and, and I actually don't think it's overwrought. And okay. that's because okay. to me, that if this is that's the sort of thing that if this was a college class and you were teaching it or, or, you know, you're tutoring one of your students and you mentioned that, your students might say, 
oh gosh, I didn't even think of that. Or, you know, you, you kind of leave class and you're like, oh my God, how stupid. Like, yeah, he's writing about trees and there's a family tree. There are these like sort of things that feel like they can be overwrought. But I, I get the sense that Richard Powers, I feel like that was more an idea or sort of a, a, a piece of subtext that spurned him and, and influenced him and really kept yeah. him writing. And, uh, yeah. you know, I don't think he... He pushes on it too much, and I, you know, for as many problems as I have with this book, I actually don't. I think that, I, I guess for me, I can see that image being something that the writer loved and that he used to to keep writing this this book. And and to me, that makes it a little bit more. I don't know if you want to say special, or it, it just makes it a little bit more solid uh, of a thing than it is like oh god okay this i get it's it true. it's family yeah, tree there, there's kind of a structure and he wears it he wears it lightly yeah or he he in, imposes it kind of lightly but the yeah. other thing i just wanted to mention was you brought up the fact earlier that he may have been in some sense compelled to write this around the 2016 presidential mm-hmm. election yeah and Having just gone through and, and described these these first two stories, mm-hmm. the thing that struck me is just how American all of this yeah. really is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the the these are very American stories. These yeah. are very American people. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, just the those the idea too of the that moment, I, and I'd mentioned it earlier of of these girls who don't know much of their. Chinese heritage and, and they sort of can't talk to their grandparents who did end up in a work camp with the communists. You know, they don't know anything of it. And clearly Winston is, is trying to be American, to do what mm-hmm. he can to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to not be mm-hmm. Chinese. To assimilate in some sense. Yeah. In, in, I, and in fact, the first sort of time that they, his daughters hear him speak Chinese is, is one night when they're camping, uh, this bear comes to their camp and, and um, the mother, Charlotte, lifts one of the girls up and takes her into the middle of the lake and the other two girls climb the tree and Winston very <laughs> like dumbly and bravely just starts talking to the bear in Chinese and is sort of like, you know, Hey, we're not going to hurt you. We're not going to, you know, they're just kind of, just kind of talking to it. But the girls are sort of amazed. They're like, we've never heard him speak like this at all. And, you know, he just sort of reverts back to his natural language to kind of to say, to and the he's animal. apologizing, he's right, apologizing right, right. to the bear yep. for, for occupying, you know, right his spot on the food chain yeah. for a brief time <laughs> very funny uh yeah i know i I, I agree with you and again like those that's something that you can bring up that it's it's no coincidence to me that richard powers the first two things that we read are immigrant stories yeah i mean the, the yeah. first section is a norwegian immigrant marrying an irish immigrant and the second one is a man who we see him come from china to the united states and those are the these are the kinds of stories that it, i don't want to go super political but it bothers me when when i feel like it's very easy for people to forget how much immigrants have contributed to this country because when you talk about immigrants now you sort of conjure up the image of someone from south america or from mexico and it demonized in the media or whatever to be drugs or just bad things and you think those people are not the same as the immigrants that came but i you know i am the children of immigrants my father's family came from ireland and italy and my mother is adopted from greece so you know and and then her family she was adopted into a greek family and those Mm -hmm. families came from greece so it's it seems to be easy to forget that 
you know, so many people's families came from somewhere else and they were immigrants and no, they were not the, they were, and they were demonized in certain ways. And yeah. we see a little bit of that here in these books every now and then. Every now and then it kind of flares up, yeah. but also the, the, the motif of the tree, the family tree, mm-hmm. um, being the thing that is brought wherever these families wind up. Yes. So the mulberry tree is meant to represent, uh, Winston's father and, and his, his ancestors, mm-hmm. um, the money that made from the silk trade right. um right and the um the whole family their their chestnut tree is not necessarily something that that comes either from norway or from ireland mm-hmm. but it, it's it, it's a transplant from brooklyn where right. they had met right. and, I mean, and it fell is, in love it's the reason that the family is there because they right. fell in love under the chestnut tree so without the chestnut tree the whole family would not be what it is yeah so. Yeah, it, it, it is very lovely quarters and actually is not what I expected from when I read that there it was a book about trees. I did well, not expect no, to touch yeah. so much on on And I thought it was, stories, yeah. again, you know, just a forest talking to itself. Yeah. But, <laughs> so it's very just, different in that Just a tree beard from the Lord of the Rings yeah. grumbling to himself. <laughs> so we've hit these last 50 pages. Would you delve in or would you shelve it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to finish this as soon as... We're done recording. Yeah. Yeah. Not finish it, but I'm going to continue <laughs> reading it. <laughs> and so for you, for you, it was, it seems to me that it was sort of the layers that are here and, and that you found in this, you know, with the, with the family tree and those sorts of motifs, but also just for the language in it, right? Yeah. 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 The, the, the stories wonderfully told, I think. Um, and I, I'm excited to see kind of what ends up happening in, in, Especially how now that you mentioned that there's a kind of overarching connection mm-hmm. or or at least an incidence yeah of of how these stories wind up combining in the end, I would love to to read more to find out what that is yeah how about you i've I've picked on this book a lot i've I've brought up the prose i've I've brought you up workshops i I have workshops <laughs> the book a little bit Pulitzer Prize winning yes i I'm gonna <laughs> shelve it. This really is, Damn. I know, this really is not, I didn't find a lot in here to keep me reading. And I appreciate what mm-hmm. I read because mm-hmm. I do think he's such a great, I will go, I will think back on some of the sentences that I read in this book, Yo, some absolutely. of the words that, that he used, but this, it felt like it, even though it's not short stories, it just felt very much like other books of short stories that I've read but not as good as as other things and i i tried to sit down and think about you know okay so what are some of the short story writers or short stories that i like and i i really like george saunders mm-hmm. i like karen mm-hmm. russell and those two are people that write very surreal and weird but even verging off from that some of the things that i read in in grad school somebody like laurie moore mm-hmm. or alice monroe or um, jhumpa lahiri yeah who i mean jhumpa lahiri touched on a lot of indian immigrants so it reminded me a little bit of i didn't think of that too. but that's really yeah yeah and i think for me for me those i think because this is a novel these stories feel a little unfocused it feels like we're hurtling towards these big moments and when I think back on what I read in those first 50 pages, it was a lot of moving quickly through generations or hurtling towards somebody's family dying of propane or hurtling towards Winston shooting himself in the head. And I, I stopped in that moment and I think I wrote down in my notes. Is it too dark? Yeah. I'm, I, well, I wrote dark. down in my notes, what am I missing here? I don't understand. I don't feel like we learned enough about him to, to get to this big moment of him shooting himself in the head. And then... I mean, 
juxtaposed against this smaller moment of the idea that his daughter has to take care of the gun somehow and she like that moment resonated with me more than Winston shooting himself but I feel like he just flew through everything so that he could get to that so that then he could get to these other things and that's why I I didn't I, I didn't enjoy this there was there was one moment that I looked back on and it made me laugh for one small moment of joy and it's when they're in the car and they stare at their sister until she cries otherwise there was nothing and in then this... the next two sentences right. the, and then right the, then again Charlotte is revealed to right her after that yeah said to mention and I think that that is not to say at all that I think the book is bad or anything like that. I think it's it's just a thing personally for me. I, I look back on reading those first 50 pages and there was no moment of joy or mirth or anything in those first little bits. And and I just I can't I like I will I just don't enjoy those things. And that's not to say that I don't if, if something sort of tragic or bad happens in something, I'm OK with it. I just feel like it needs to be a little more earned than than what Richard Powers has here. That is extremely interesting because <laughs> at the beginning you asked me and I was struggling to come up with answers for some of my favorite books. Yeah. Or I guess maybe the, the easier question for me is who are some of your favorite authors? Mm-hmm. And some of my favorite authors include Joy Williams, mm-hmm. whose short yep. stories I have recommended to you. Yes. But they are incredibly bleak. Yeah. And very sparingly written. Yeah. And Fleury-Yegi has a kind of coldness about, or an austerity, I guess, maybe the way that I would put it, Mm -hmm. to her writing that I love, Mm. that I don't necessarily... I think if you don't like this, right. you won't like either Joe Williams <laughs> or Floriani, who are two of my favorite authors whose work I, I have I definitely in the past brought up to you, if yeah. not recommended yeah. outright. Yeah. So maybe I'll rethink my recommendations yeah. to you in the future. Well, you know, I think it's important sometimes to, or, or, or I'm, start, I'm beginning to feel this, and as somebody who is aspiring to, to write and, you know, to, to publish things, it's good to... I, I eat your vegetables. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's good. I talk about this all the time on the podcast. It's good to step out of my comfort zone and read something like this. Yeah, where, yeah. again, I feel like I can take a lot from Richard Powers and the way he writes. I just, you know, you you could give me this same book or the same idea, and it would come out so different and so differently structured and everything. But then again, I think that that is that was a flaw of mine in in school and probably still as a writer where. I got the note a lot that my characters were too nice to each other and nobody ever does anything bad <laughs> or hurtful in there. And it was because I just couldn't bring myself to write anybody being shitty or that. shitty things happening <laughs> yeah, to yeah. them. And, you know, I, I, I think that I, I put up the blinders a little bit or I shield myself a little bit from that stuff, uh, you know, and, and the no, media and I the mean, things that I consume. But right, when we talked about Frasier earlier, like that's my go-to, like when I'm feeling down and I just want to watch something. I've watched every episode of Frasier probably three times in my life, if not more. I mean, I've watched the whole I mean, series Bull, Bulldog is, right. is a sociopath <laughs> bar not. Total BS. <laughs> uh, but, you know, those are the, I find myself going back to those kinds of things when I'm in need of, of something to, to go back to. There's very few times where I want to go and make myself sad and feel that catharsis that way. So, well, I mean, the, the last note that I would say on that is that, I mean, we, we like what we like. Mm-hmm. And as someone who studied art history and worked in the commercial art world, I was faced with a lot of times where I was told that I had to like something because right. the artist was important or the, the conceptual underpinnings of the work were somehow really interesting. Yeah. 
but uh, I've kind of come out of those experiences feeling like if it doesn't interest me visually, yeah. then I don't have to like right. it. Right. <laughs> I think right. the same goes for all sorts of things, yeah. but especially writing, especially yeah. art. If it doesn't spark joy, <laughs> toss it in. Marie! <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, so all right. Now, here's the part where I ask you to blind date with a book, this okay. book. What would be some some comparative titles that you would give to this? Oh, um, Yoko Tawada's The Emissary. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, Which, wait, did that win the Pulitzer for Translate? What did that win? I think it may have oh, won no, for I think it won the Pulitzer for Translation this year. So, um, so, German, so she lives in Germany and she writes both in German and Japanese, yeah. if I understand it correctly. And the, the, she told the story of, was it Knut? The polar bear, the, the oh, polar yeah. bear who lived in Berlin. And she told the, the story yeah. of the, the polar bear's family going back yes. like three generations. Yes. Like, one of which was performing in a Russian uh, ballet right. or, or had some part in that. Yeah. And, and so that, but the emissary, the language of the emissary and how it kind of traces this intergenerational story mm -hmm. um, is maybe a book that I would throw in the mix there. I'm trying to think of some other, Jumbo Lahiri, Interpreter of Maladies yeah. is another, I think, perfect one. That jumped, that jumped to mind for me. Even, I mean, we've, we've sort of touched on a few that I think we could, we could pull even a little bit of George Saunders, um, yeah, you know, certainly. in there. I would throw in, you know, um, Alice Munro's short stories mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I think I feel like hers always sort of end on on a bit of the upswing. They kind of always tie up in a happy ending, but there yeah. are certainly moments of of the same sorts of like confusion or embarrassment that, or or you know, just encountering these these bad things happening that, mm -hmm. that we did see a little bit in this. And maybe for good measure, I would put in the the Swiss author, Swiss Italian author mm -hmm. who I really like, Floriegi. I would mm -hmm. put in SS Proletarica, which is the story of the last time that she sees she being the protagonist. Um, and we're also led to understand that it's a lot about it's it's partially autobiographical mm -hmm. or, or loosely autobiographical. Uh, the last time that she sees her father um, on this kind of weird cruise that she ends up taking with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, um, and again, just for for the kind of story about how you, I don't know, how you relate to your family members and the things that you choose to remember them by, and and the things that come up when you think about them later on. Yeah. So. Huh. And if you could recommend this, or is there somebody in your life that you would give this book to? Oh. Not my mom. She, she really needs a more positive. I wouldn't give this to my mom text. either. I, yeah, even though my mom does enjoy reading things that that you know are a little bit more sad, I think that uh, I don't think that she would like this Not one. This one, and and you know, I I, uh, I would recommend this to friends though, mm -hmm. um, certainly. And yeah. but it it seems like given the brisk sales and the, yeah. the Pulitzer win, I may not have to be the one to do right, that. Right. I, I don't know if there's anybody specific in my life that I would recommend this to, but it's definitely another one that I'll throw in for the blind date actually is, is Pachinko. It is, it feels kind of oh, like yeah. that of like, you know, clearly there's a lot of, you know, family saga to this, albeit in, in more places than, than just one particular family. But it is definitely a long 
sort of sweeping narrative that, that seems to come together all in the end. I believe it's just shy of, no, it is 500, 502 pages exactly. So it is by no means a, a short, quick read, and it is not something that is, you know, lighthearted and get you through the summer months but maybe you know it's the winter you're it's traveling true. with it's your a family winter yeah you know if you've got some time around the holidays and want to read something that well definitely has a lot of layers to it and a lot to digest in it then this is this is a good one but so that's a, a dell for tyler and a shelf oh, for me i think i've shelved too many things <laughs> i feel like i started the podcast like everything's great and i'm gonna read everything and then lately i've just been such a curmudgeon like no, no i'm not reading it i don't like no. it <laughs> i do wish it were a glossary of some of these tree terms it requires oh, yeah. a kind of technical understanding of trees that i didn't know that i lacked right. before I, <laughs> I think that he said writing this that he you know read over a hundred books on trees and started with you know a, a specific tree manual but if hey if you like trees then this is definitely the book for you this is the one but it, it, the trees don't talk no they don't talk. The i would like i think i would listeners. like that more i would if it were a george saunders story they would talk and they also would probably be like weirdly horny for some reason yeah and, yeah know, yeah and, no and and one more thing just to apologize to anyone that i i did recommend this to who may have purchased it from the bookstore here that guy at the store told me this was about trees talking trees to each talking. other i hate this so, well, thank you so much for coming on, Tyler. Do you have anything you want to shout out or add on oh, to anything? Oh, no, just how much I love and miss working with Andy and, <laughs> and to thank oh, him kind. for inviting me on. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. Right in the book that he bought. If nothing else, I'm really glad that you found something sort yes. of unexpected that, that you didn't yes. know that you wanted to, to read. And uh, I do like to touch base and do a little recap episode, so I'm excited to touch base back maybe oh, I'll come on for the reunion. when you finished yeah when you finished this and and, uh, and see what you thought but shell for me Adele for Tyler come yes on. all right thank you Tyler thank Bye. you everybody for listening and gosh this was this was fun good night Richard Powers good night trees good, good night, night Tyler good night moon <laughs> Furthermore was created by Andy Dorado. It's written, edited, produced, and all the music you hear is by Andy Dorado. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Furthermore. October's bestseller was certainly a strange one for me, and although I did not end up delving into the book, I'm glad I could have Tyler on to do the episode with me. Hey, did you know Furthermore has an Instagram? I recently had a poll asking everybody if you thought Furthermore should also have a Twitter, and you told me... Maybe? So you know what? If you don't want Twitter, maybe go follow us on Instagram if you haven't already. We have lots of fun stuff on there. I have lots of things lined up, including book recaps from all of the episodes that I want to get started on come the new year. You can follow us there at Furthermore Podcast, all one word. And hey, while you're on Instagram, why don't you check out our artist at Furthermore, Max Farinato. All of his artwork can be found at CBArtist underscore. Max does some great work. He also does some really fun Twitch streams every week, so you should check him out on Twitch as well, CBArtist. October means scary books for some people, but for me, it actually meant, well, it meant starting The Handmaid's Tale for uh, the previous episode, The Testaments. And if you listen to that episode, you know that I actually had to put Handmaid's Tale down halfway through the month and pick up another book. And that other book was City of Ink by Elsa Hart. City of Ink is the third book in a series about Chinese librarian Li Du, who had been previously exiled from Beijing and, and now in this book has returned to his hometown to take up work to try to discover some of the mysterious circumstances around just why he was exiled in the first place. While that's going on, Li Du accidentally uncovers a whole scheme involving a murder and involving cheating at the civil servant's exam. It's a great fun. I really love 
historical mysteries. I don't know if I love historical fiction. I don't know. I just love history. I love mysteries. It was a fun time. If you haven't read those books, you should check out Jade Dragon Mountain, which is the first in the series. But if that one sounds fun to you as well, you don't really need to read these in order, and that's what I think is sometimes really fun about mystery books. If you're traveling this holiday season, please travel safe, and I sincerely hope that an episode of Furthermore maybe helps your plane ride or your train ride or even a long car ride from somewhere else. And hey, if you haven't recommended Furthermore to a friend or a family member, maybe seeing your friends or family around the holidays is a great time too. I really want to thank Tyler for coming on. Tyler and I had many a good night at the store just talking books and he has such an eclectic taste and I really do feel like it's so different than mine but it really pushed me to maybe look at some things that I hadn't before or think about some things that I hadn't before and the fact that we landed in two different places here is of no surprise to me. So thank you Tyler for coming on and thank you for listening to this episode of Furthermore. If you ever need a book recommendation, please don't hesitate to reach out. It's what I do. This is Andy and hey, keep reading. If we were an accident, I'll swear you to the stars. A regression's just a point on a line we call a scar. I made a vow to care.